Welcome to Emerging Technology Horizons. I'm Mark Lewis, the Executive Director of NDIA's Emerging Technologies Institute. And this is the podcast where we discuss various aspects related to the introduction of uh, critical emerging technologies for the for the national defense enterprise. Um, with, with me today is J.V. Venable from the Heritage Foundation. Um, JV is, you know, very well known within Washington circles, within within uh, defense circles, for his writings on a variety of topics related to to national defense and especially modernization. Uh, senior research fellow for defense policy uh, in the Center for National Defense at the Davis Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy. Um, he has also written extensively about leadership. Uh, had a st storied Air Force career. One thing I want to highlight. Uh, JV uh, uh, commanded the, the, the Thunderbirds, the, the, the legendary uh, demonstration squadron. Um, he's also, you know, talk about profiles and courage. Uh, uh, JV at one point faced some medical challenges in his Air Force career. Was at one point, I guess, told he was ne he would never, he would not fly again, but but ma made his way back, not only to the front line, but to the, you know, the very, very. Uh, 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 one of the most prominent positions in, in, in Air Force flight leadership. So, so JV, thank you so much for, for, for joining us on this podcast. Really looking, looking forward to the conversation. Mark, it's an honor to be with you. With your background, <laughs> not even terrible. close. I'm not I'm worthy. Um, so, you know, I wanted, I wanted to talk a little bit about the general topic of introducing modern technology into into the department. And, you know, I can tell you from a personal standpoint, it was it was it was a struggle that we had on the E-ring because every time you want to introduce a new technology, you've always got the folks who love the legacy system, they've invested in it, they've got the sustainment, they've got the workforce. And so can we talk a little bit about that? What had how what barriers do we face in trying to introduce new technologies into the department? I think you've hit on it uh, right on the on the money mark. This idea of wanting to leap forward while holding on to what really you know works that uh, that's a, a big deal. First, let me say thanks for this opportunity. I uh, got to meet your team the other day, and and I am just completely impressed with what you have and where you're going. And I look forward to playing at least a small role. At least I hope a collaboration. Yeah, absolutely, with that absolutely. Move forward. Technology is uh, it's, it's striking for a, a variety of reasons. I remember when I was uh, going into the F-16, watching two side-by-side -side aircraft take off. One was the F-4 and the other one was the F-16. And the F-16 was vertical probably 5,000 feet off the ground before the F-4 even uh, broke ground. And, and these stark realities of, holy cow, uh, that you go, okay, well, that's just that. I remember fighting an F-4 as a student learning to fight the F-16. And, and one thing was mixing things up and how well the airplane turned, but the thing that really got my opponent, he was a major and I was a very young captain, was when we went away from each other to start a neutral fight and come in, when I turned back in and got a radar lock on him, he was at 11,000 feet, 6,000 feet above where we were at the end of our last fight. And I was at 22,000 feet at 400 knots. And he, he basically threw his, his uh, pin on the ground and, and cussed at me and said, that's just not right. This disparate, uh, fun, fun opportunity is a reality in combat. So when I think about the F-16 now, and I think about fighting the F-22, it's the same unfair fight. It's the same thing fighting the F-35. 
The F-35, you can't see it. It's on you, and, and you've been dead for five minutes before you get your first glimpse of them. And those realities are really hard for people in, in the national capital region to understand, one. But two, when you come back into the average fighter unit and the, and, and the way people know things work, they have to see that disparity before they'll believe it. They have to be the one who's throwing their marker down in the debrief in, in absolute frustration over how unfair the fight is. Once that reality hits the operational units, for it to come back up into the bureaucracy that's here in D.C. is another challenge. And you have several different competing sides. I was an F-16 guy for most of my career, Mark, and that's a general dynamics turned Lockheed Martin product. So I was a fan because it was a really good airplane. The folks who grew up with the F-15 and the F-15C model, really dominant platform. There, that was built by Boeing, McDonnell Douglas, or McDonnell Early, and then Boeing. And, and this is what they love that product. And so even in military circles, you're- Oh, I know that well. <laughs> yeah. But what you, what you really want for the warfighter is for the bias to go away and for you to actually look at the realities. And if you're talking about the difference between $1,000 a flight hour and you have to scheme it in order to get that $1,000 differential for one airplane over another, when that extra $1,000, if it did exist in, 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 in difference, buys you a capability that's another decade ahead, two decades ahead of your own, where you know it's an unfair fight, it's worth that investment. And, and people in the city still still aren't buying that. And it's interesting to see. Yeah, no, I agree. You know, I. I, I, I would often say the most expensive weapon is the one that makes you lose the war. <laughs> and I'd see that all the time. I you know, when I was in the building we'd see cost analyses and you know, they'd be, be focusing on a nickel nickel and diming weapon systems and, 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 and other other assets and you realize that that just paled in comparison to the, the consequences of, of a bad outcome. And and it's kind of the bean counter mentality that that, that, that I found very frustrating myself, frankly. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I um, you know, I also, I also like your point. Um, it, it's amazing, maybe you've experienced this as well. So what, I, 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 the, the term I, I would often apply is, arm, ar, you know, we, we're faced with armchair warriors who, who don't, don't necessarily have a, an operator's understanding of the technology. And, you know, when I, when I was on the E-ring, I'd have folks coming into my office saying, what we need to do is buy more P-51s because they're really cheap and we can buy a lot of them. Yeah, and they're not going to do anything for us. They're going to fall out of the sky like raindrops. Um, so there, there's that certain mentality, even even on the weapons side. I mean, we had a big battle with some of the folks uh, in OSD when we were trying to introduce the the portfolio for hypersonic weapons, where we had the camp that said, "But but we've got these great tomahawks, and they're cheap, and we know how to build them." And yeah, but they take two hours to get to their target, as opposed to my my hypersonic system, which will get there in by, ten or fifteen minutes. The, the fight's over. Um, right? by, by that, time, yeah, they're forgetting the yeah. You know, you you take this oh, exactly right. and you go back to yeah. real combat, yeah. real periods where we're fighting a pure competitor, and really the last time that happened was World War Two, and and in the uh, the years leading up to World War Two, technology was changing very rapidly, particularly in the flying world. And so 1937, 1938, 1939, you had a lot of prototypes coming out. And the Air Force decided, the Air Corps at the time, decided to field a, a platform called the P-40. P-40 was really capable for 1938 
But by the time the war kicked off in 1940, 1941, it didn't have the service ceiling, it didn't have the climb rate, it didn't have the speed or the turning capability of the P-51. And when you look at the apples to apples comparison, the P-51 cost a little bit more, uh, maybe 10 to 15% more than the P-40. But we would never have been able to send bombers downtown into Berlin to, and for them to have a chance of, of coming back and surviving if they were escorted by P-40s. So if you can imagine taking our 40 P-40 squadrons at the beginning of World War II and going, no, no, sure, we can buy that and pay more, but we're going we're gonna to fleet the force with P-40s because they're more inexpensive. It would have cost many more lives, not just of the P-40 pilots, but of the B-17 and the B-24 pilots that, that were supposed to get top cover from folks that wouldn't have been there for them. And that is the same premise, the same thought process that we're walking into with great power competition, Mark. If we decide to say, well, you know, we did this and for the last 25 years and we went unscathed with that mindset going into the the face of the threat in Kaliningrad or going into a, the air defense, the integrated air defense system of the Chinese will get waxed and we won't have a shot at bringing down those those enemies when, when they arrive. Oh, and you know, I, 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 another a point I also like to make, I mean, the our peer competitors have had an entire generation to study us and study, you know, how we have, how, how we have been successful in recent conflicts. Um, you know, we introduced stealth in, in, the, in, in, in the Gulf. Well, that's, you know, uh, that's almost three decades ago. Um, the, those folks have, have had an awful lot of time to learn and study our game plan. Yeah, and this idea of, of using technology to our advantage. When, when the other folks are rising up to meet our technological edge, that's, the, that's one challenge. But for us to go and rely on technology this is one of those things where our, our aviators who kind of rely, like to rely on what works really makes sense. The average fighter pilot doesn't fly with a, with a map anymore. He flies with the, 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 the moving map on the screen. And so if you lose those systems, having that backup, knowing what works so that you can still get bombs on target and still move the ball forward for the home team, that's yeah, what it all absolutely. comes and down you know, I, I really appreciate your, your, your highlighting that what we're really talking about at the end of the day is preserving our, our lives of, of, of our warfighter. I mean, that's, that's, that's what our technology investments are about. We, we spend coin in place of spending blood. Yeah. And it's no, it's not. Cheap. It's not. But I know, I, know, I know how I want that trade to go. So um, yeah. I also know I, I never want a fair yeah. fight. That's, you know. <laughs> yeah. No, and it's looking more and more like the fight's getting fairer, which is what yeah. we don't want. Yeah. Right? At the end of the day, we want every advantage we can get. And generally, it's not fourth generation platforms that are going to get us there. Generally, it's not the standard missiles that we've been used to. We need delivery systems that can get to the target and get to the target faster than, than they can get to ours. Yeah. Yeah, fully, fully agree. Absolutely, fully agree. One, one of the one of the emerging technology areas that I really wanted to focus on with you uh, is, is the whole area of space. And and uh, you know, uh, a former Secretary of the Air Force, Heather Wilson, I think, wrote wrote very eloquently. I I am I'm paraphrasing a bit, but that you know, we built space as a glass house and forgot that the neighbors could throw rocks at us. And you know, we we we've, a lot has been written about the vulnerabilities of of our space systems. Um, 
I, I wonder if you could comment on that. Space for you know, we've got the Space Force where you know we've we've stood up this the, the, the new service. Um, what are your thoughts on on their span of control and and making sure that the Space Force is properly positioned to fight in space, but also to 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 champion the technologies that are going to be critical to our success in that domain. Boy, that last line's really powerful. Let me talk about mindset first, and then I'll go into span of control. Um, I went to fighter weapons school in 1991, and uh, there was a space uh, division down the street. It was really stood up, and they started receiving patches around 1996, weapons school patches. But we never got to talk to them, and, and they were always kind of a mystery to us down the street. Uh, when we came back to do other exercises, again, there was that separation. Uh, about six months ago, I met my first Space Force Weapons School graduate, Space Weapons School graduate, since I had been in the service in 26 years and the 13 years beyond. And talking with him, I got a sense for how there was a, a lid over the mayonnaise jar. He went in, they did talk tactics, and they talked offense, and they talked defense, and they rode heavily on it. But it was such a sensitive topic that when he left, everything that he had produced was shredded. And every name on the roster of folks was also deleted so that there was no real impetus going to Congress that said, we're living outside the lines. We're now thinking that space is no longer a peaceful domain and we want only commerce to go on there. Well, in fact, it's been a war fighting environment since the 1950s. Right. Right. And, and, and we, we are just now coming in with a team that now has given that the blinders are off and they're given the opportunity to run. And so that mindset's really important. Having the tools and the portfolio of assets at their disposal is also really important. I'm gonna talk about sustainment systems. I'm gonna talk about back, what I call backbone systems first. You know, the, the run of the mill um, GPS satellite, we've got some 33, 34, including, um, including uh, those that we've set aside in dormant orbits, waiting as backup fares, we've probably got 37 in orbit. Those don't need a lot of manhandling. They, they don't need a lot of maneuver or upkeep from a day-to-day -day flight perspective. And so that's the mindset that the Air Force kind of had on, on, the, on the, our space core with inside of the Air Force. And freeing them up to where they can start talking about your first point, which is the defensive side, is really important. And so what systems do we need? We need to be able to detect things that are going on our satellites. We have an okay capability of that in open source and nothing I'm gonna talk about will even touch uh, closed source, uh, close sources. But this idea of being able to detect things in a broad sense is one side, but if you've got a, a, a needle coming at you in the size of a, a, a electromagnetic weapon, a, a, a laser that comes in and it hits a satellite Unless you've got a sensor on that satellite, it's going to be really hard to detect that. We've got sensors all over, F-35s, F-16s. We know when we're being targeted. We know the direction, and we generally know what weapon system is coming at us, which means we know we made it, right? And so this idea of being able to attribute those attacks in precise fashion is one side of this, but saving that incredibly valuable asset is another one. And so we know you're under attack, you can move or you can take other protective measures. And, and that's the defensive side. But in all the war games that I am familiar with, when you go into the classified realm, unless you have an offensive capability, 
you lose in space. And this idea of being able to not just match, not just defend, but go offensive and remove their capability, counter space, to remove their capability to harm your assets or to deny your people their services. And that's what the Space Force is there for. And so bringing all of the assets that we have to where we understand what's under attack and how to maneuver it and have people actively on the controls under one dome, under one uh, command structure, to where we know that defensive side. And then on the other side, starting to have these, uh, abil the ability to, to go kinetic, to go into not just the cyber world, not just the laser world, but actually go into this kinetic denial of sources in space. People are afraid of debris, and I'm not talking about debris generating connective, uh, connected uh, uh, operation. I'm talking about the ability to go in, take a CubeSat, which we, our, our, our good friends in NASA have worked, these, these four inch by four inch devices that actually can maneuver, go on and latch onto another satellite and then collect, uh, wait until you open them up to, to, to throw out some kind of signal that denies um, the enemy's ability to, to, uh, to contact or engage and that to communicate with that, that threat. Or if we need to, take a laser or some other device and skewer the electronics inside of that system where it doesn't generate debris. There's lots of opportunities here, but this is where NASA the commercial space se sector and space all come together. And I want all of the portfolio, as much as humanly possible that we have in the Army and the Navy to shift over in the Space Force so that you have that command structure and you have that that uh, that, that semblance, that unity of effort in one service. Absolutely. So as you know, we, we had stood up the Space Development Agency in, in OUSD. And and a, a lot of their mission was exactly as you say, you know, focused on bringing in current technology, especially commercial technology. As you say, I mean, the the capabilities of small satellites today are just absolutely eye watering. And and I, I wonder are your thoughts on this, but but often I found that the barriers were were cultural. I mean, you've you've we've got the folks who love you. They they spent their careers building what what we what we used to refer to as the Battlestar Galacticas. You know, the incredibly expensive, very capable, but incredibly expensive assets and and couldn't shift their their focus to smaller proliferated yeah, systems. It's a, it is a mindset change. You know, when I was listening to the rhetoric inside of, of my service, the Air Force, I, I heard this idea that, uh, you know, the, the warrior mindset is in the active duty Air Force where you have guys that are actually used to going out, projecting, engaging and taking risk in order to, to bring the enemy down. And we don't want to lose that mindset. That's where our space assets get it. Well, I, I think there's some mighty aggressive people, uh, it, at least it, it, inside their skin, inside of this, what is now the Space Force. And I think unleashing their potential is going to bring that to bear in a very positive manner. I agree. What I, I was, I what one of my great failings, I, I would, was actually enthusiastic about creating something like a space red flag. I thought that would have been a, you know, I still, I still think that's a valuable thing to do to, to, to actually, essentially to, to create the culture that you were just describing. I think describing. that's a great idea, and I would be willing to bet that there are some smart people inside of the Space Force right now that are working in that direction. If it hasn't already materialized, it's underway in planning.
Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Hey, so you know, one of one of the elements we when we talk about standing up the space force and the various parts that go into the space force, you know, one one of the, the elephant in the room sometimes is, what do we do with the NRO? I, I'd love to hear your thoughts about about where the NRO should be and how it plays with the space force. Well, I love the subject, and thanks for bringing it up. Just uh, the NRO, uh, the National Reconnaissance Office, has been doing extraordinary work for the United States since its inception. And they all came about in the late 50s, the NASA, uh, uh, the NRO, and then all of the space programs within the services all just started skewering out in different directions, diffuse directions, kind of bringing superiority to the United States, but but in different directions and not unified in thought and, and in development. And so this idea of the NRO, NRO having a niche strategic go out and grab and develop the best technology you can to find people wherever we need to find them and bring us back imagery, bring us back um, the details of collection that we can't get from another source. That niche, that high speed organization has slowed over the years. It's been given more and more tasks as bureaucracies tend to do. We've given this, uh, this, this very niche organization um, the need to feed the State Department, the need to feed other organizations, which are really important for the, the functioning of our government, but they are or, they're, they're on the order of what the Space Force is now tasked to do. And, and the Space Force has changed away from, you know, that, that GPS non-maneuvering satellite that I talked about before. The Space Force is now starting to maneuver things on an active basis. And they're having to for a couple of reasons. One is collection, but two is, is because they know that there are bad people out there and they're going to have to move to get to them or move to avoid them, one of the two. And so our mindsets have kind of come up to the same level um, with the, the NRO coming down to the Air Force level in a day-to-day -day kind of grocery store. This is what you need on the shelves and come and get it. And, and the Space Force has now risen up. And what I want, and I think what the, the service and the DOD needs is to move those grocery store items, the more day-to-day -day routine fund and feed the, uh, the beast that's associated with the rest of the government, and then ratchet up that technology and go deep. Go into the risk-taking environment. So if I know I've got a PQ groceries on the shelf for you, Mark, and, and you're going to be mad if you come in and there's not bread on the shelf for you and your family. I'm not going to take the risk to develop a new kind of bread product. I'm going to keep producing that same loaf for you over and over again. We'll give that loaf over to the air, the Space Force now and start developing that new, that new tasty uh, morsel that everybody wants. Only this comes at a very uh, critical time for us. The Chinese are, are maneuvering big. They're gaining large, both from their collection and their, their technological leaps, hypersonics and space. And so we need to elevate our game, no pun intended, and we need to do it in a hurry. Yeah. Oh, I, I could not agree with you more. I, I will say I, I've seen some very promising signs recently, especially NRO under Chris Scalise, who you know, brings all that NASA experience to, to, the, to the role. Um, almost a, a renewed embracing of, 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 of uh, newer technologies, next generation technologies, commercial space technologies. So I'm, I'm, I'm actually, I'm cautiously optimistic, but I, I agree with you completely that, that, that it, it, it needs to be an integrated That's game. That's great to hear, and I love uh, so, positive news. Jerry. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, so I guess as 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 we go forward, um, you know, you you mentioned hypersonics, you know, an area an area of uh, uh, an area of strong personal interest. Um, the, one of the technologies that the Chinese have, have have obviously invested in heavily. In many cases, you know, they stole our homework. They 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 built on our on our advances. They read our papers. They exfiltrated information in ways that weren't quite legitimate. Um, Space as well. I, I, you know, I agree with you. We, we've seen the Chinese build on our space capabilities. Uh, they link civil with military very closely. We just saw China land on Mars. That was an impressive technical feat. They're putting up a space station. Um, going forward, you know, as we face this pure competitor threat, um, if if you were to if you were to look into your crystal ball, um, where do you see us going? Particularly in space, you mentioned capabilities. You mentioned, you know, offensive, defensive. Um, are we, are we, are we moving quickly enough? And if we're not moving quickly enough, what do we need to do to energize the bureaucracy to get past what we've called here at ETI the modernization quandary, which is how do you introduce emerging technologies with budget constraints and process constraints? And frankly, all the people who get a vote, you know, Capitol Hill gets a vote in everything you're doing. How, how do we move this? How do we move the ball forward? Uh, well, that's a great and hard question. Living in the city, it's hard to answer it because I have to go through bureaucracy just to get to you. So this, this idea of getting out of the way is the greatest statement that we've done in the last probably five years, six years. Prior to the Trump administration, there were three commercial space launch organizations out there and it cost a lot of money to launch anything and and the time the schedule that it took to put a satellite in orbit was ginormous both in terms of cost and in terms of time and and now there this year there are 10 space launch organizations that are commercial and all are vying for for the cheapest launch the most reliable launch that they can give to compete with the others and this is buying down the cost without the government paying anything for the effort, or very little, I'll say, seed money. And so now you have Elon Musk rolling up satellites on the order of 25 to 30 a year space launches to get into low and to medium and at times into geo orbit. So this, this idea of getting out of the way is one from just the launch perspective, but the technology is another one. I remember General Hyten saying maybe two years ago or three years ago, um, when he was asked, hey, how about the development of space systems that go into the offensive and to that next uh, Space Force thought process? And he said, you know, I'm kind of happy with where the commercial sector is going right now. And with a little bit of seed corn from, from NASA, the, a little bit of money, uh, a couple of commercial organizations have developed the maneuvering capability that we need to rendezvous and, and do proximity operations, not just with other CubeSats, which is a phenomenal feat to go out to 30 kilometers and come back in and do contact operations with two in that environment with the, with the navigation challenges that are in space to that level, amazing. But then to take that system and now start thinking about it in a military sense, if you take the technology that's there that you got out of the way, maybe fed a little bit to develop, and now you start to get incredible capabilities in return. There's a company uh, that's a, uh, uh, from Denmark, I believe, and they have the ability to, to generate um, uh, photographs uh, 
built with radar that have the, the fidelity and classification that we would never let anybody in on 15 or 20 years ago, down to the 10 to 15 centimeter range, as opposed to the meter, the foot that we used to use, or the just a crazy amount of, of fidelity. And, and that company has developed with just a little seed corn money, this capability that we can tap into and pay for on demand. And that is where we kind of got out of our own way. The bureaucracy didn't slow us down. You know, you, you mentioned the SDA. Uh, the, uh, that organization is now nimble. Right now, it's in the nimble developmental stage. But just like the NRO or any others, if we're not careful, we're going to load it back down. And it's going to start developing one-off systems that go up into geo and cost a gazillion dollars again. But I hope it doesn't go down that path. But this idea of, of, of nimbleness is also going to transition and has transitioned to the services and to the Space Force itself by diversifying the portfolio of satellites that we've got. It's its own defensive measure. When we proliferate LEO with the capabilities that, that give us incredible fidelity of imagery and a backup for, for a position, navigation, and timing that that is now available through these incredible GPS satellites. When we start doing that, we become much harder to take out. Oh, like, yeah, I agree. Absolutely. Um, as you know, as a strong advocate for proliferated Leo, I agree with you completely. That's gives us resiliency. As I, you know, I, I, it's, it's. They can no longer take us out entirely if they start attacking our assets. Frankly, all they do is piss us off. That's where we want to be. Yeah, and then and then we get to go and execute the next right, level. Right, exactly. I, I really appreciate your highlighting SDA. I'm I'm a, an incredible fan of that organization. Uh, they've they've done some remarkable things in a very short period of time. Uh, I share your concerns. I, I I hope they're allowed to remain nimble and flexible and harnessing commercial. Um, I, I I I I think it'll be it it will behoove the space force where eventually space development into a move. I think it'll be who the space force to preserve that capability. Mark, I think you're right. And those threats are, are just like we talked about Boeing and Lockheed Martin and the fighter force. They're inside the services now. There are people who love the products that come from the big metal benders as opposed to the nimble little ones that are throwing up these small sats in LEO as opposed to these mammoth, very expensive satellites in, in GEO. And, and that, that wrestling tournament is not Yeah, over. absolutely, absolutely. JV, I, I can't thank you enough for this conversation. I, we, as, as we, I, I, think, I feel like we could, we could talk all day on, on the, these subjects. So, so I hope you'll indulge me and maybe come back on the podcast at a, at a future date. I would love to, and I look forward to, to enjoying as, the As do I. JV, thank you so much for being with us today. I really appreciate it. Mark, it's been my pleasure. Talk to you soon.